Evgeny Prigozhin. He is the head of the Wagner Group. That's a private army of Russian mercenaries and ex-cons. They staged a coup against Vladimir Putin's military leaders last Friday, seizing government buildings and then deciding to call it all off. He is now reportedly in Belarus, a country bordering both Ukraine and Russia. Belarus has cooperated with the Russian military during the invasion of Ukraine. Alexander Lukashenko is the president of Belarus, and many consider him one of Putin's toadies. But Lukashenko is reportedly telling people that Vladimir Putin instructed him to kill Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group. He said, kill him the second he sets foot on Belarusian soil. Lukashenko reportedly told Putin he wouldn't do it. But then Lukashenko called Prigozhin. He's the head of the Wagner Group. Lukashenko warned him that Putin intends to, quote, squash you like a bug. That being said, Putin did have to negotiate his way out of this mutiny, giving Prigozhin and the Wagner Group safe passage to Belarus. And the Russian government has agreed to drop all charges against Prigozhin. Kremlin watchers say it's too soon to say how tentative a grip Vladimir Putin now has over his own military. But the consensus seems to be that Friday's mutiny has severely weakened Putin. And this probably heralds the beginning of the end of his more than two decade rule over Russia. The New York Times reports this morning that there are reports that Prigozhin, he's the head of the Wagner Group, think Eric Prince from Blackwater, but Prigozhin's probably more fun at parties. There are now reports that Prigozhin led the mutiny with an understanding that several disgruntled Russian generals would support him. One of those generals might have been General Sergei Serovkin. He's seen here with Putin in 2017. U.S. intelligence officials are telling The New York Times that General Serufkin was Russia's top commander in Ukraine until he was replaced in January of this year. The New York Times says intelligence agencies here in the United States are attempting to determine whether or not General Serufkin might have assisted the Wagner Group in drawing up the plans for Friday's 36-hour mutiny. The New York Times says American officials are saying that the Wagner Group would have never launched the attack on Putin's military had they not been given assurances from high-ranking Russian generals that they would support such a move. The Congress, back in 1978 signed the Inspector General report. Uh, I'm having a technical problem here. There we go. Did I do it right? Okay. In 1978, Congress signed the Inspector General Act of 1978, which has resulted in approximately 74 Inspector Generals spread out across the federal government 
and they serve as independent watchdogs over federal agencies, you know, like the Army or the Justice Department. Much like the Congressional Budget Office or the General Accounting Office, inspector generals have a reputation for rising above partisan politics. And often their word is either final or close to final. Now, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some inspector general reports that came out on Tuesday. First off, during we could talk about COVID during Donald Trump's final year, if you remember, uh, COVID struck and Congress, under his leadership, passed the CARES Act, which set aside close to one trillion dollars, more than one trillion dollars in small business loans that could be paid back. Or if you don't want to pay them back, you didn't have to. The loans were administered by the Small Business Administration and the Small Business Administration has an inspector general and the inspector general for the Small Business Administration issued a report on Tuesday saying that after all is said and done, the Small Business Administration dispersed a total of $1.2 trillion in COVID relief to small businesses. And of that, 17%, $200 billion dollars was squandered due to fraud, waste, and other trickery. Hmm. You mean that the Trump administration dispersed $1.2 trillion to small businesses and $200 billion of that got squandered? I find that shocking. Waste, fraud, and trickery in the Trump administration? During COVID? I don't trust this inspector general. Well, the Justice Department also has an inspector general, and the inspector general for the Justice Department delivered a report Tuesday on the death of sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein while he was in federal custody awaiting trial. Epstein was found dead, if you remember, inside his Metropolitan Correctional Center jail cell in Manhattan. That's a federal prison. And the inspector general for the Department of Justice concludes that Epstein was not killed, that he died from a suicide. But the inspector general says in its 114-page report that the Federal Bureau of Prisons was sloppy and negligent and failed to keep an eye on Epstein, who they knew might try to take his own life. Epstein's brother called this report BS and insisted that Epstein was murdered. Chicago and Detroit are under a thick blanket of smoke that has drifted in from Canada's wildfires that continue to rage. Officials say Chicago and Detroit air quality is the worst in the world. The worst in the world. As of Tuesday night, 92 million Americans are living under an air quality advisory. This is from Canada's wildfires, which are turning out to be Canada's worst wildfire season ever. There are 490 separate wildfires 
spreading from Quebec to British Columbia, sending soot and smoke into the air. These particulates are carcinogenic. You should not be breathing them. The wildfires are the result of fossil fuels being burnt, creating greenhouse gases that trap the heat, causing the planet's temperature to rise, resulting in hotter and drier summers. And that serves as an accelerant for massive wildfires. These wildfires are the fault of ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and British Petroleum. These fires will continue until those companies are put out of business. You cannot have both. You cannot have a planet that is habitable for our children and at the same time have companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and British Petroleum. The fossil fuel industry and the future of our children can't coexist. It's one or the other. And the American government has chosen fossil fuels. Well, in the final days of the Trump administration, Trump brought in several outside lawyers who talked him into this extreme legal theory that the Constitution granted state legislatures the power to conduct federal elections with no oversight from the state governor or the state Supreme Court. Now, the Constitution has what is called an elections clause, and because it's vaguely worded, it specifies that state legislatures determine how the elections are conducted. It was an oversight. Instead of adding the words the state governor and the state Supreme Court, it just says state legislatures determine how elections are conducted in individual states. So far-right crackpots came up with what is called the independent state legislature theory, which means, for example, that Trump could lose a state like Pennsylvania, which he did, but because the legislature at the time was controlled by Republicans, they could vote they could decide that there was voter fraud and they, the state legislature, with no supervision from the Democratic governor or the democratically controlled Supreme Court, the state legislature could vote to send their own electors to Washington, D.C. and ignore the will of the people, you know, claiming voter fraud. At the time, as an example, both the Pennsylvania Senate and the Pennsylvania State House were controlled by the Republican Party. There was a Democratic governor, and the Supreme Court was primarily Democratic. But with the independent state legislature theory, this crackpot theory, they maintain that the elections clause of the Constitution specifies that only the legislative branch of each state gets to set election laws for that state. And like I said, Trump was trying to work the Republican state houses that were controlled by Republicans to have them send Trump electors instead of Biden electors to Washington. It's a little complicated. It's uh, what Trump dreamed up. 
that state legislatures could choose any electors they want to send to Washington to determine who was president. And the Supreme Court on Tuesday in a six to three ruling said the independent state legislature theory is bogus and that state election laws involve all three branches of state government, not just the legislative branch. One of the architects of this theory, the state legislature theory, is John Eastman, who wrote several memos to Donald Trump outlining why Mike Pence had the constitutional authority to declare Donald Trump the winner on January 6th. Remember, this was Donald Trump was convinced by this guy, John Eastman, that Mike Pence had the constitutional authority on January 6th when counting the votes. He could just ignore what he counted and just declare Donald Trump unilaterally the president, or he could insist there was voter fraud and the Constitution granted Pence the power to demand a delay in the final tally, get like a 10 to 12 day delay after January 6th, which Eastman calculated would give Trump more time to figure out how to stay in office. Eastman also promoted the idea that Trump could work the state legislatures to send their own separate electors. This is against the law, sending separate electors. It's something the special counsel, Jack Smith, is looking into. It is criminal to conspire to send separate electors to the Electoral College. Well, as a result, it's not looking good for John Eastman. Last week, the State Bar of California began proceedings looking into stripping him of his law license. The proceedings continue this week and might last through August. It's really hard to disbar a lawyer. I, I talked about this last week. Giuliani, alcoholic, lost 60 cases challenging the 2020 election, was a complete moron. And all Washington, D.C. and New York can do, those bar associations, all they've done is suspended his license. Obviously, this guy should be stripped of his law license. Lawyers do not like to strip each other of their license. Well, this disbarment hearing for John Eastman is not going well. It's kind of funny if it isn't sad. It's kind of funny. During the disbarment hearings, Eastman was accused of presenting a truck driver's affidavit in 2020 as evidence of voter fraud. The driver, according to Eastman, in when he was challenging the election and Eastman was presenting this truck driver's affidavit, Eastman said that the truck driver was a witness to vote tampering. But Eastman, during this week's disbarment hearings, revealed, well, I never really vetted the truck driver. I just took his affidavit. And Eastman did not know that the truck driver whose affidavit he took was also a professional ghost hunter, a ghost hunter. He sees things that don't exist, like ghosts, 
and election fraud. Not only that, he had a history of mental illness that included drug abuse and domestic violence. By the way, Eastman served as a law clerk for Clarence Thomas. He's good friends with Ginny Thomas. And Clarence Thomas on Tuesday voted with the minority, hoping to uphold his old clerk, John Eastman's independent state legislature theory, Clarence Thomas. I'll have more on Clarence Thomas tomorrow. If you remember the Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg, indicted Donald Trump for, among other things, falsifying business records and violating campaign finance law when Trump arranged for hush payments to Stormy Daniels in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. That trial is scheduled for March of 2024. Trump's lawyers, however, are trying to slow things down, and they are challenging now Alvin Bragg's jurisdiction. He's the Manhattan DA. Lawyers are saying that the Manhattan DA can't bring Trump to trial because the alleged crimes were committed while Trump was president. Therefore, the trial should be transferred to a federal venue and a federal prosecutor. Now, Trump arranged for Michael Cohen, his personal attorney, to make the payments to Stormy Daniels while Trump was still a candidate. So the initial plotting of the crime was committed in Manhattan and Trump wasn't yet president. But Trump's lawyers insist that because Trump reimbursed Michael Cohen for the hush money payments when Trump was president in the Oval Office, Trump's lawyers are now insisting this is now a federal crime as opposed to a New York City crime. And there was a three-hour hearing on Tuesday on whether or not to transfer the jurisdiction. This is what Trump does. He just slows things down. On Tuesday, federal judge Alvin K. Hellerstein, he listened for three hours to this nonsense and said, while he's not ready to make a firm ruling quite yet, he says he's leaning towards not transferring the venue of the trial to a federal court and will keep, he says he's probably going to keep it in Manhattan. This is what they do. Delay, delay, delay. So that trial could happen in March of 2024. A lot of trials to keep track of. The Washington Post reports that it took the FBI a year after January 6 to launch an investigation into the role Donald Trump played in instigating the attack on the United States Capitol. The Post says that institutional caution and fear over the FBI, uh, they were afraid of looking partisan, it resulted in the FBI slow-walking any investigation into the role Donald Trump played in instigating the January 6th insurrection. The Post goes on to write that Attorney General Merrick Garland 
was aware of the FBI's reticence. And so he decided early on to go after the low-hanging fruit, the January 6 rioters. And then after securing their convictions, which he seems to have done, close to a thousand convictions, he planned at the beginning then to start working his way up the ladder. And he eventually appointed Jack Smith as a special counsel to look into all of Trump's crimes. It's all under one portfolio. Jack Smith, special counsel. He's looking into every crime that Donald Trump may or may not have, may he did commit. The Post says the FBI was even reluctant to search Mar-a-Lago last year, even after a warrant was issued to retrieve classified documents that Trump refused to turn over. But the FBI, according to the Post, eventually agreed to search the premises after they noted the highly sensitive material at play. Today, Donald Trump told ABC News that the documents that he was waving in front of two researchers for Mark Meadows' autobiography, he was caught on tape at Bedminster Golf Club showing them classified documents, a war plan drawn up by Mark Milley. On Tuesday, Donald Trump told ABC News, it wasn't a war plan. I was just showing off. It was nothing. It wasn't a war plan. It wasn't classified. It was just my bravado. That's what he said. Meanwhile, Jack Smith, the special counsel, after securing an indictment of Trump in Miami for mishandling classified material, is reportedly expanding his portfolio to investigate Trump's attempts to overturn the election in Georgia. You already have Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA in Georgia, looking into this. And now Jack Smith is making a federal case out of it. You all remember Trump's call to the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffsenberger, telling him, we just need to find one more vote than Biden has. If you've heard the tape, it's election tampering. Well, there are reports now that Raffsenberger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, is now being interviewed by Jack Smith's office, which suggests the scope of the federal investigation is going to be much wider than Trump anticipated. Ivanka Trump got a bit of good news on Tuesday. I just what what happened there? There we go. Ivanka Trump got a bit of good news on Tuesday when the appellate division of New York's Supreme Court on Tuesday stripped her from State Attorney General Letitia James's civil suit against the Trump Organization. This is a civil suit charging the Trump Organization with defrauding banks, insurance companies, and the IRS. It's really hard to keep track of all these lawsuits. The judge ruled that there was a statute of limitations and that this case, which is scheduled to go to trial in October of this year, this case can only include crimes committed by the Trump organization after February of 2016. 
And since Ivanka had already stepped away from the company by then, the statute of limitations dictates that she be stripped from this New York State fraud lawsuit. She also broke ranks with her brothers, Eric and Don Jr., are also on trial. She got her own lawyer. She said, that's okay. I don't need uh, daddy to hire me a lawyer. Uh, Jared will get us one. And it worked. She, she's not going to be standing trial before the state, New York State Attorney General. Uh, Trump's two sons, Eric and Don Jr., are still named in this case. The state attorney general of New York is seeking $250 million in damages, and she's asking that Trump be forbidden from ever conducting business in New York State again. Donald Trump's valet, his body man, also has been indicted by Jack Smith. Uh, it's in that Miami federal courthouse that he has to be arraigned. He's uh, been accused of mishandling classified documents alongside Donald Trump. Walt Nauta was with Trump two weeks ago when the former president was arraigned. And Nauta's arraignment was delayed two weeks so he could find counsel. On Tuesday, Nauta had to ask for even more time, saying he can't afford his current lawyer, who at the last minute suddenly jacked up his fees. Nobody wants to handle Walt Nauta. And word is that Donald Trump is going to find it increasingly difficult to find lawyers because he doesn't pay. He doesn't pay and it's bad for your reputation. Well, Donald Trump lost Michigan in 2020 to Joe Biden. He's done even worse in Oakland County, Michigan, where he not only lost to Biden in 2020, he lost to Hillary Clinton in 2016, even though he beat Hillary statewide. He does not do well in Oakland County, Michigan. Well, people in Oakland County, Michigan, don't like him, which is why Republicans of Oakland County, Michigan, had no choice this past weekend but to name Donald Trump not just Man of the Year, but man of the decade. You know how this was negotiated. The Oakland County, Michigan Republican Party held its annual Lincoln Day dinner Saturday night. It was a fundraiser with tickets fetching as much as $7,000 a seat. Donald Trump was invited to speak. He's a big draw in Oakland County, Michigan. Not on election day, but for the idiot Republicans, they want to see him. So how do you entice Donald Trump to come to your fundraiser? Tell him you're naming him man of the year. Nope, not good enough. I want man of the century. Well, how about man of the decade? So he became, uh, he's Oakland County's, Michigan's man of the decade. 
I don't know why everything is screwed up today. Uh, and there to open for Donald Trump was local boy who made bad Ted Nugent, who played the national anthem before Donald Trump took the stage. Now, Ted Nugent is a huge gun rights activist. After Kyle Rittenhouse killed two Black Lives Matter protesters and injured one with his AR-15, Ted immediately called him a hero and invited him on his podcast. Ted believes in guns. He says he was born with a God-given right to carry an AR-15 Consequently, he's a board member of the National Rifle Association. Ted also has a history of racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism. You can't separate gun obsession with racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism. I'll get back to the guns in a second. Let me show you the anti-Semitism, and then we'll get to the racism, and then we'll go back to the guns. Here is a Facebook post where he accused the Jews of being behind gun control. And uh, this is the, the, uh, the meme he passed along. It's almost as though Roseanne Barr and Theo Vaughn are writing for him. Look at this. this is, so who is behind gun control? And uh, I mean, the, it's so grotesque. Can you read this? It's just, I won't even, just, let's move on. It's just so grotesque. If you can read some of these things, uh, yeah. Ted Nugent. Grotesque. Um, a few years ago, Josh Sugarman from the Violence Policy Center dug up an interview that Ted Nugent gave to the Detroit Free Press about apartheid. Let me read you what Ted Nugent had to say about apartheid. So Josh Sugarman writes that his organization, the Violence Policy Center, has been tracking Nugent's hate-filled rhetoric for years. He says in 1990, for example, Nugent told the Detroit Free Press magazine that apartheid, uh, what is going on here tonight? That apartheid isn't that cut and dry. All men are not created equal, says Ted Nugent. He goes on to say the preponderance of South Africa is a different breed of man. I mean that with no disrespect. Yeah, of course not. I say that with great respect. I love them because I'm one of them. They are still people of the earth, but they are different. They still put bones in their noses. They walk around naked. They wipe their butts with their hands. These are different people. You give them toothpaste and they effing eat it. I use the N-word a lot because I hang out with a lot of N-words and they use the N-word and I tend to use words that communicate. That is uh, Ted Cruz. You, you can't uh, separate the racism, the anti-Semitism, and the sexism without the obsession from the obsession with guns. Did I mention he loves guns? He loves guns. He thinks 
everything can be solved with a gun. And yet, when he opened for Donald Trump Saturday night at the Oakland County, Michigan Republican Party fundraiser, everyone had to go through metal detectors. Think about this. When Ted Nugent performs, it's only in front of good guys. It's a room. They're all going through metal detectors. Oh, we got action over here. My wife told me about that one. Yep. When Ted Nugent performs, he loves guns. But when he performs, his entire audience is just good guys without guns. You know why? Because Ted Nugent doesn't need a good guy with a gun. He can handle it. Take away, that's what he's saying, take away everybody's guns. I don't need anybody protecting me. I don't need it. I'm Ted Nugent. I don't need a good guy with a gun. He is so brave. And uh, then after Ted Nugent played the national anthem, I wonder uh, when Ted Nugent, since he's a racist, I wonder when he sings the national anthem, does he add the verses about killing slaves who escaped the plantation? See, this is why we can't teach critical race in Florida, because we can't let our kids know what they're singing. The national anthem was written uh, during the War of 1812 when we were fighting the British. And one of the tactics deployed by our British enemies at the time was to attack southern plantations and enlist the slaves. They would free the slaves and say, come on, fight against America, which many of the slaves did quite successfully. Some of them helped ransack Washington, D.C., which is why the third verse of the Star Spangled Banner is directed at mercenary soldiers or hirelings, as they were called back then, and freed slaves. And this is what Francis Scott Key wrote. And this is the third verse. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's what the Star-Spangled Banner. This is why Colin Kaepernick took a knee. It's a song that celebrates killing the slaves who were freed. Anyway, Ted finished the national anthem. I doubt he sang the third verse. Ted finished the national anthem. And then it was time for Donald Trump to speak before he got to accept his Man of the Decade Award. But as always, before he speaks, the former president must first clear his throat. And then Donald Trump launched into attack on Joe Biden. He accused the president of being a religious bigot. The real Biden on religion. He's not in favor of religion. He can talk all he wants, but what they've done to Catholics and what they've done to evangelicals, what they've done to everybody is a disgrace. So stupid. He's not in favor of religion. It's like a four year. 
Uh, yeah, what Biden has done to evangelicals and Catholics is a disgrace. Yes, the bigotry of supporting same-sex marriage and allowing transgender soldiers in our military, the bigotry, he did that not to help the LGBTQ community, but to persecute religious people. Joe Biden is in favor of contraception. That's a slight, that's an insult to religious people. Something Trump would never do. He, he does not use contraception because he's a devoutly religious man, right? Stormy Daniels says he didn't wear a condom. Did you know that? I don't know if you remember that. But Stormy Daniels says Trump didn't wear a condom when he cheated on Melania, who had just given birth to Barron. That's how deeply religious Donald Trump is. He refuses to wear a condom while he's cheating on his wife because deeply religious people are uh, opposed to contraception. And then Trump wowed the Michigan crowd by summoning the spirit of their favorite son, Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motors, a world-class America firster, Henry Ford, loved Hitler, really did, uh, horrible anti-Semite, Henry Ford. Here is Donald Trump in Michigan honoring the memory of Michigan's very own Henry Ford by going full bore Hitler. This is full bore Hitler. This is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. And we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will defeat crooked Joe Biden. We will liberate America from these villains once and for all. Now, look, they say when you bring up Hitler, you've lost the argument. We know that Trump kept a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. He is pinching Hitler's speeches. This is this is these are lines directly from one of Hitler's Nuremberg rallies. I'm going to play it again. This is what he's using. It, it's he's not improvising He's going word for word off the fascist playbook. Listen to this. This is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. And we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will defeat crooked Joe Biden. We will liberate America from these villains once and for all. You know, democracies go bad and they go bad very quickly. And we have half this country teetering on the brink of bankruptcy we have an eviction crisis. 
we have a planet that America is heating up. And the people who are responsible for stealing all our money and setting the planet on fire want somebody like this guy. They want a fascist who will be able to handle the climate refugees and restore order in the streets when people are sleeping there. Nobody's going to rise up. This is not accidental. This is a playbook that has been followed by the industrialists for more than a century. Trump just didn't appear magically. There are elements in our country, there always have been, who want fascism. They did polling when Roosevelt was president. And when asked, do you prefer communism to fascism? A vast majority of Americans preferred fascism to communism. And when they were... <laughs> When they were at, this is when Roosevelt was president. And when Americans were asked, if you have to choose between the American system, fascism, or communism, the American system came in first, but fascism wasn't too far behind. It took the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor for everybody to get on board. There is a fascist strain in this country. Donald Trump just didn't materialize. On tomorrow's show, I know he's boring. I'm going to talk about Ron DeSantis because he's trying to out-fascist Donald Trump. And they're both working off the same playbook. Demonize the transgender people. Demonize the LGBTQ community. Demonize black people. Demonize Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans at the border. Starts with them. Who's next? Jews. Then Arabs. Then anybody who isn't a white, heterosexual, Christian man. We're not going to end up like Nazi Germany. But if these guys get control we will end up with a fascist theocracy and that will benefit the, the, the schizophrenics who truly think Jesus is coming and they're getting ready for the rapture. And of course, the moneyed class who, yeah, go ahead, dream about the rapture. Just let me keep setting the planet on fire so we can get wealthier Trump didn't materialize out of nowhere. And you get rid of Trump, you're not going to get rid of the fascism. There's DeSantis. And behind him is Mike Pence. And I'm telling you, if these legal fees and the, the legal problems with Trump continue to build and he has a health problem or he just can't run for president, keep your eye on Mike Pence. Chris Christie's there throwing punches, but he's not going to get the nomination. DeSantis is unlikable. He's too on the nose with the fascism. Mike Pence is the one to watch. He's the establishment Republican. He looks and sounds like the establishment Republican. 
but he's just as much a Republican fascist as Donald Trump, Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, and, of course, Ronald Reagan, who started it all. But there's one Republican I believe in. I'm going to end on a happy note. Let's end on a a happy note. Republican presidential candidate Perry Johnson. He's the value millionaire. That's what he calls himself. The value millionaire from from Michigan. I played him yesterday. I think I'm going to play him every night. Here he is at the Faith and Freedom Coalition Friday night winning over the Christians. By golly, we are the greatest country that ever lived. And let's keep it that way. Hey, 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 let's do it. Let's do it now because we are going to win this next election. Let's do it. Yeah, not so easy to do Hitler, is it? He tried. He tried to be Hitler. Couldn't pull it off. Maybe he'll get better as we get closer to the general election. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Aaron Regenberg is the progressive candidate running for Congress in a special election this year in Rhode Island. A former state representative, Aaron, led successful fights to pass paid sick days legislation, raises states tipped minimum wage for the first time in 20 years, reform the use of solitary confinement, expand harm reduction strategies, and enact new renewable energy programs. He's also a climate lawyer and activist. He's been endorsed by all the good groups out there, progressive orgs like Howie Klein's Blue America, Working Families Party, Our Revolution, and Progressive Democrats of America. Unions like the Communication Workers of America and the Association of Flight Attendants. Climate groups like Climate Hawks Vote and Rhode Island's 350.org affiliate. And progressive icons like the aforementioned Congressman Jamie Raskin and his campaign is the best chance for us to score a major progressive pickup opportunity in 2023. I'm going to turn this over to Howie Klein from the Blue America Pack. But you all have to go to AaronRegenberg.com and donate. The primary is in September. Is that correct? September 5th. That's yeah. right. It's in September. It's A-A-R-O-N-R-E-G-U-N-B-E-R-G.com. Give him money right now. Please welcome Howie Klein. He writes Down with Tyranny, a must read, and he is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money specifically for Aaron Regenberg. I can't think of a better candidate uh, to, to send money to. Whose seat uh, is he running for? Well, it was uh, um, David Cicilline's seat, and David Cicilline uh, uh, is aggressive and uh, and good, and, and he he's retiring. And um, the the other people who are running in the district are all very conservative Democrats. Do you, uh, David? Do you hear like a lot of noise in the background? No. Okay, I hear like smashing and crashing and. I don't know what it was. Anyway, Aaron, do you hear uh, noise? Uh, it's clear on my side. Okay. 
Good, good. So uh, anyway, uh, so it's important to know that the this uh, primary in September, that's the election because it's a very, very, very blue district. A Republican's not going to win there. So it, what really matters is, is who wins the primary. That's the person who's going to be in Congress. Speaking of- And like, like I said, the other candidates, very, very conservative, corrupt, establishment people. And then there's Aaron, the one progressive who's running in this race, the one real progressive who's running in this race. David, you want to say something? No, uh, I, I'm all, I'm all, I do, but you, you handle this and then I'll chime in. Okay, well, I mean, I think the listeners have heard from me enough over the last few years, and they haven't met Aaron yet. Aaron, let me just uh, start with one question. And so I noticed today that Chris Larson sent out an email. He's a, a state senator and our friend from uh, Wisconsin. And, you know, the, the best member of the Wisconsin legislature. And, and he sent out a, a letter asking people to donate to you in Rhode Island. He's in Wisconsin. You're in Rhode Island. Jamie Raskin is in um, Maryland. You're in Rhode Island. Uh, so I was wondering, why is it that these people are, are uh, rallying to you? I don't see that happening in, in other races around the country. How, how did, how, is it because of of you having been a young elected official of people for the American way. Is, was that the connection? Yeah. For, uh, for Chris Larson, uh, we became friends as, as um, state legislators together. Um, you know, there were, there were some efforts to sort of do some cross state compact things. You know, the, our, our state system in a lot of ways is designed to give corporations a big sort of leg up over state governments that are trying to regulate, that are trying to tax, and corporations always have the the leverage where they can say, well, you do this to us, we're going to pick up and leave. So there were some efforts to, to sort of collaborate um, on that and some other issues, um, and particularly in the, in the wake of Donald Trump's victory when it really came down to, oh, it's the state levels where, we, where we're going to have to um, defend our rights um, and fight back. So uh, got to know Chris um, there, and he's a he's an awesome awesome state senator in Wisconsin. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people um, here in Rhode Island in particular, but but folks um, in other areas as well that really recognize this is the this is the one congressional primary that's happening this year in 2023, and so uh, you know what happens here could have a lot of impact. It could. Uh, give us some real progressive momentum going into 2024 and all the important uh, races that are coming up. Um, so we're really we're really excited about this race. As, as Howie said, this is a this is a blue district. So it's a question of what kind of Democrat do we want representing us? Um, and you know, as, as uh, Congressman Raskin said in that um, in that clip, uh, the the challenges that we face right now, whether it's you know taking on the fossil fuel industry to win climate action, taking on the gun industry to prevent these senseless tragedies, uh, standing up for abortion access, standing up for workers in the labor movement. On all these fights, I don't think we're going to be able to achieve the kind of change that so many people really desperately need right now just by electing one more Democratic vote in a blue district. We need folks who can organize and bring people together and have a record of winning real progressive policy change. And that's the that's the work I've been doing here in Rhode Island for many years, and it's the kind of work that I'd be uh, so honored to be able to to contribute to and support alongside 
the folks who are doing it right now, like Congressman Raskin and so many others in Congress. Right. And, and every time, not every time, but very often when, when I see stuff written about you, it seems to involve um, climate change. And is that is that the, the big issue that you're running on? Is that the main one? I mean, there's there's the world is on fire in a lot of ways right now. But there's a lot of really urgent fights. Climate change, I think it's fair to say, was my my number one motivating factor for getting in this race. My wife, Katie, and I have a two year old son and I spend a lot of time thinking about the kind of world that he's going to grow up in. And the truth is, right now, we're on a trajectory for that world to be a really scary and dangerous place. And though there's so many urgent issues right now, and we don't need to pick and choose, we got to be, you know, full steam ahead on on all of them. I do think cl- the climate crisis is the one with the strictest time limit, right? Like we've got five to ten years. The decision we, we decisions we make over the next few years are going to set the course of human civilization for the next ten thousand years. And as you guys know, that that's not hyperbole. That's that's physics. Um, so we've got to get our act together. But the good news is, as you know, we have everything we need right now to make the clean energy transition that that we need to secure a livable future, right? Like we have the technology. The cheapest way to produce electricity right now is to point a piece of glass at the sun. Like these are miraculous times in a lot of ways. The problem is politics. We do not have the political will to overcome the stranglehold that the fossil fuel industry has over our political system. And so um, for me, running for Congress, getting up there and working to try to organize a consensus, at least among the Democratic Party, the Democratic caucus in Congress, that the fossil fuel industry is not our friends when it comes to climate and a clean energy transition. They are the obstacle that we need to overcome. Um, and so that that would certainly be a, a big priority of mine. Right. And you it, know, I, I know I, you I, deal I, with. Sorry, it's, it's an issue I've worked as a state legislator, as a lawyer. There's there's a there's some experience there as well. Right. That's what I was going to ask you about. I, I know that you deal with these uh, fossil fuel companies there in Rhode Island and they have children and grandchildren, too. Uh, uh, are they. What's going on with them? Don't they see what's coming? That, to me, is the hardest question to wrap my head around, because what we know is these companies and their executives have known exactly what they were doing since literally the 60s and the 70s. Their scientists at Exxon, at Chevron, at Shell, at BP, they were predicting to tens of degrees exactly what uh, where where our global climate would be. They were predicting exactly what the effects of it would be. And instead of using that information to try to help save civilization, they used it to uh, raise the levels of their offshore oil rigs because they knew that the sea was rising. I wow. mean, the, the green, uh, it, you know, the, it, it is, it's is that true? Issue. That's outrageous. I didn't know that, that 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 they responded only by raising the rigs. That's incredible. Yeah, they, they did that. Not only that, they also, you know, created and funded this this international campaign of deception and fraud. Of course. To, yeah. to stop um, the efforts to start actually regulating uh, fossil fuel emissions and, and, and transitioning to clean energy. And they spent billions of dollars to do that. 
Um, you know, the, the question about the actual individuals and their grandkids is a tough one. And I, I am reluctant to throw around the words like evil, but if what they have done isn't evil, I'm not really sure what is. And I do think we need to start treating it as such. I mean, there's, I think a big part of the, oh, and my, my wife and toddler just walked in. So you might hear some, some noise behind me um, speaking about the future. Um, but, you know, I, I think the work that we need to be doing is we need to figure out how to remove the social license to operate that the fossil fuel industry has right now. You know, big tobacco used to have an ironclad stranglehold over our political system and made it impossible for any public health measures and regulation of tobacco. And not to say big tobacco doesn't still have some political power, but it is severely reduced from what it was like in the 90s, right? And that was because um, through litigation and advocacy, uh, it came out how terrible their deception and fraud was. And it was pretty disastrous and their, their social license to operate was, was undermined. And we need to figure out how we're going to do that uh, to the fossil fuel industry. And that part of that work is um, work that, that our senator here in Rhode Island, Sheldon Whitehouse, has been, has been doing to try to really publicize uh, the campaign of deception and fraud. Congressman Rocana in the House has been trying to take that work over to the House side, and, and I do think we need more folks on the House that are beating that drum, um, which is definitely a, a reason I'm in this race. You're a lawyer? Uh, that's right. Can you litigate these climate deniers away? When you look at Fox News, I saw on Laura Ingram when we were covered in a blanket of smoke from the fires in Canada, there was a climate change denier who used to work for the tobacco industry who was insisting that the smoke was perfectly harmless, that there's no evidence that these particulates cause cancer. And as I was watching him, I thought of the the lawsuits, the Smartmatic lawsuits that's going on, the Dominion lawsuit. Can you prove willful negligence? Can you sue Fox News for putting a liar on like that? Is it willful negligence? I was thinking about this when I saw when I saw that, when I saw um, Matt Gates get on and, and say, people go out, go out. I think he was posting on Twitter, go outside and breathe in the air to own the libs. I mean, rhetoric like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're not supposed to laugh, Howie. <laughs> but it is funny it's that the funny, same guy who used to lobby for the tobacco industry and say cigarettes are perfectly safe is now telling us there's no problem breathing in wild. He said it's natural. He, he literally right. said, how can it be bad for you? It's natural. The smoke is. Well, so is tobacco's natural, too. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, it, I think that rhetoric like that will lead to people having health effects. Like some number of people saw that and went out and uh, sucked in more air than they would have. And that's going to impact them down the line. Pregnant folks, that's going to lead to um, premature birth. Like there's, right, we know that there's going to be those effects. And I think if someone wanted to, once that, once those effects developed, they could have a case there. 
Um, it'd be Weren't the attorney generals at one time going to do a, a lawsuit against the oil companies for hiding the evidence the same way they so did right, with tobacco? So right now, as we speak, there are dozens of lawsuits from cities, counties and states that are moving through the process that are doing exactly that. They're suing Exxon, Chevron. Rhode Island actually was the first state to bring one. It's called Rhode Island v. Chevron. Um, based on a number of different uh, different legal theories, but basically uh, deception and fraud. And um, they have been tied up in uh, jurisdictional um, back and forth because, again, these companies, right, they have infinite resources. And so they have been doing the most ridiculous delay tactics. Uh, they, they want the, the cases in federal court. The um, the plaintiffs and states want, want it in state court. And so up till now, there's been it's been like three or four years of litigation just around that, because every little bit, uh, every little step inch forward, the uh, the industry will appeal an appeal and appeal. It's, it's ridiculous. And they don't have but, the kind of immunities that the gun industry has. Right. 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 And they, they have up till now, they have lost at every level on those jurisdictional phases. There's a few suit, suits that are moving on now to uh, to discovery. Um, and that's going to be, you know, there's going to be potential there to get some more information about exactly what they've done that could really blow things up. Um, talking about talking about the like the how you what people say and how you frame it. Just last week, the most recent case was um, filed by uh, I think it's Portland, Oregon. And this was the first case that also included some of the biggest PR firms in the world because these PR firms were complicit working with uh, the the fossil fuel industry to create these ads that told people climate change right. isn't a thing. And so I think that work of extending liability to all of the other industries that are supporting them. When I was in law school, I was organizing among law students to, um, to protest the big law firms that represent Exxon and Chevron in these cases. So I think we, we need like, we needed all hands on deck, like across the board, we need to be fighting these people, uh, you know, on the beaches, on the, whatever that line is, right. we need to be going after them uh, in every in every venue we can. Right. Well, are there any other members of Congress that you know of who, you, who are as militant about this as you are? There's people that you want to work with? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I remember how, um, how moving it was for me in 2016 in a presidential debate and it was Bernie and Hillary on the stage and the moderator asked, what is the greatest um, security threat that the United States faces today? And Bernie Sanders said, the climate crisis. And I was like, wow, someone's actually saying it. So, I mean, there, there are folks who've been doing this work for a while um, Senator Bernie, Senator Markey, uh, Senator Warren on the House side. There are, you know, the, all the folks who have been pushing for the Green New Deal. There's definitely a lot of leaders. I think that um, there's a lot of folks I'd be excited to, to work with and to, you know, bring bring as much energy uh, and, and organizing experience that I could. Good. I, I, I remember one time I, I went out to dinner with Ted Lieu when he was a state senator here in California, and he was um, getting ready to run for Congress. And uh, we were with a friend, 
And the friend said, um, California is so beautiful and you have a wonderful family and I know you love them and you know, you're going to go all the way across the country to Washington, D.C. Why would you do that? And, and he answered the, the question the same way you did, saying that it was because of his kids, that he has two young sons and he, could, he and his wife couldn't see them growing up in the kind of world that was being created. So there were members of Congress definitely who, uh, who feel the same way you do, but somehow it's not happening. Somehow, you know, uh, the leaders of Congress are not pushing it. I don't see, you know, obviously Pelosi didn't push it. And now we have uh, someone much worse than Pelosi and Hakeem Jeffries who isn't pushing it. They don't they don't seem to care about the issue. I mean, maybe they do in some theoretical way. But obviously, people who are listening to this know that you're not talking about theory. Yeah, I mean, so how do you overcome that? I well, mean, I'm not even talking about Republicans now. I'm talking about, uh, you know, corporate Democrats. You know, Noam Chomsky called the Republican Party worse than Hitler. He said, if you want to count all the people are going to end up dead because of this negligence when it comes to climate change, the Republicans are more a threat to civilization than the Nazis ever were. And that's why he supported Biden, surprisingly. Do you want to respond to Howie's question? Yeah, Howie, I I mean, I think that's you have completely nailed, as usual, the the issue. Um, I do think it's a two-step, right? There's two pieces of this that we need to do. One, we need to win back the levers of power for the Democratic Party against the Republican Party, which at this point is just a full-on death cult, right? Um, and two, we need to we need to build a consensus within the Democratic Party that uh, that we need real urgent action. It is um, it's. It's a big task. Um, we've seen that it's that that it's possible to create a new consensus on climate change where there wasn't one, uh, and we saw that it culminated with the passage of the IRA. But I think the the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act that to me really started with uh, the Sunrise Movement's um, sit-in of Speaker Pelosi's office um, back in 2018. Um, because that was sort of this sunrise and a whole bunch of other groups, including the labor movement and others, came together and said, okay, what we need to do is we need to change the conversation of climate from what it had been, which was like a carbon tax and like all these, you know, not really sort of concrete in front of you things to green, to green industrial policy, to good paying union jobs. And over the course of several years, they did that and they made climate into an issue that when Democrats heard climate, they thought industrial policy, jobs, economic development. And we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which does a whole lot on that front. Um, the problem with it is that it doesn't do, it does all this stuff on the demand side, building up our renewable energy infrastructure and economy. It doesn't do anything on the supply side, on the actual limiting fossil fuel infrastructure and supply. And we know why Joe Manchin and others blocked that. Um, uh, But also because we hadn't done enough groundwork to, again, create that consensus that supply is an issue and we need to take on the folks who are uh, making billions and billions of dollars, pumping out more of the of the substances that are fueling this crisis. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, like I don't have all the answers. I know that it, what it comes down to is organizing. We need to make, you know, the Republican party, right. We, we just, uh, just on Saturday, right. Mark the, the one year anniversary of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, which, you know, such an overwhelmingly sad moment. Um, Back when back when Roe v. Wade was decided, the Republican Party was not necessarily more anti-choice uh, than the Democratic Party, and there was a group of organizers and lawyers and activists who came together and said, "We're going to like build this strategy out," and they made it so that within a couple decades, uh, it was impossible to be a Republican to win a Republican primary uh, unless you were fervently anti-abortion. Um, we need to do the same thing. We need to make it impossible to win a democratic primary unless you're willing to say, I'm not going to take money from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I'm not going to support expanded fossil fuel supply. Uh, we're going to actually take the climate crisis seriously. There's a lot of work to do on that front and we don't have a lot of time to do it. And that can be kind of overwhelming when you think about it. But, you know, one, one thing that happened when I, when we had my son is I, I used to, you know, I'd get overwhelmed thinking about these existential threats and, um, and sometimes that could feel pretty paralyzing. And when we had my son Asa, that went away. Like I haven't had that kind of paralyzing existential dread since, because it's just like, okay, we don't have a choice. Like we have to win. However long the odds, we do not have a choice. We need to win, and not just for my son, but for every young person uh, that's living in the world today. So um, it's a uphill battle, but we don't have a choice. We need to we need to win, and so we we got to get out there and start fighting. It's to- total war. You have to view it the same way we took on Hitler. You, that's you, right. You, it's it has to be total war, total destruction, I believe, of the fossil fuel industry. Anything short of that is appeasement. But nobody's willing to say that. The same way it's got to be total, it's got to be total war against the health insurance companies. Bernie says it. I mean, are you willing to say it's time to declare war on the oil companies and the, uh, the, the for-profit health insurance companies that you cannot have health care? Health care cannot coexist with the profit motive. I mean, they've been waging a war against working people uh, for, for decades now. And absolutely, we need to start fighting back. And how do you think that works politically? See, I think Bernie, there aren't enough people like Bernie. If more people talk like Bernie and were incendiary and said, we have to destroy the health insurance companies, we have to wipe out billionaires, use that kind of language. I I was reading Bernie's new book about being angry about capitalism. He's unapologetic about saying Get rid of bill, eliminate billionaires, eliminate health insurance companies, eliminate these oil companies. That kind of rhetoric is, you know, dangerous to the ruling class. But I think it's how you win elections. That's a great well, point. You know, we, we, Go on, Howie. 
No, I, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think that so much of what we're talking about right now, it's not just the morally just and necessary thing to do. It is the politically correct and astute thing to do for the Democratic Party. Um, and and our failure to do that as a party, I think, is a lot of what has gotten us in trouble over the years. Um, I think, you know, the thing about Bernie is he's willing to say that, he's willing to speak truth to power, but he also knows how to play the legislative game to actually try to get concrete things over the finish line. I was talking to someone um, a couple years ago in his in his orbit, and we were, I was asking if Bernie had won in 2020, let's say, what, what would have been his first move on, uh, on Medicare for all? And his answer was, Bernie knows that like we're not going to pass Medicare for all in one fell swoop, given the political realities. But there is very much a chance to start building a path to that universal health care system by, let's say, lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 55 or as low as you can go with the amount of political capital you have at one time. And you do that, you start building a constituency of more and more people who are invested in this. And then you next time you you can you get it down to 45 and you keep moving and well I, I don't i don't i don't mean to i know howie howie do you mind if i respond to that what i i just want to respond to that and i'll be quiet that's incrementalism and my understanding of bernie always was you have to understand that if i become president it's going to be a revolution that if i that that i will it would be a landslide it would be a movement election and so you could, in the first 100 days, institute Medicare for all. As a state legislator, how responsive are you to the masses? Because incendiary speak, speech, politicians should be bringing people in front of the Capitol that's what Bernie promised to do, to go to West Virginia and humiliate Joe Manchin. Without people on the streets protesting, we're not going to get that change, are we? Why aren't more Democrats uh, being, I hate to use the term incendiary, but use, the Republicans use incendiary language all the time. Why can't the Democrats rile their base and and scare the hell out of the ruling class. And you, you say incendiary, but I mean, you can just list objective empirical facts and they sound incendiary. But that's just because our reality is so unequal and unjust that the rea- it's the reality that's incendiary and you're just you're just speaking the truth of it. Um, I do. Th- you know, my experience as a state legislator very much uh, confirmed for me, and I, I came into politics as a community organizer. I, I um, founded a youth education org in Providence called the Providence Student Union that brings young people together to fight for changes in our public schools. Um, and then going into the state legislature, I saw that I saw how far you could push when there wasn't a real outside game, when you hadn't really built 
that grassroots coalition coalition that was knocking on doors and making calls and showing up at the state house and maybe even sitting in um, or doing more aggressive tactics. When you're not doing that and you're just trying to sort of play the inside game, there's stuff you can get, but it's pretty limited. Um, for me, it's always about how do we how do we bring the inside game and the outside game together? Because you you need to have this outside game that is putting pressure on the system, that's shifting the overtime, that's creating more space for more ambitious uh, policy possibilities than people would have thought was possible without that pressure. And then you also need folks who are doing the inside game to then fill that space and do the actual you know parliamentary maneuvering relationship building concrete stuff to get to get things over the finish line. And so I think I think there's my role when I was in the state legislature was often trying to be the bridge between those two to say, okay, how do we make sure that we're actually communicating with each other and we're rowing in the same direction and we're creating a really powerful campaign and movement um, in a way that each one on its own is not going to be as powerful as together. And I think that um, there are folks in Congress, there are folks in the Congressional Progressive Caucus that, uh, from my perspective, do that work. And I would want to be a part of, of, you know, that mini caucus of bridge between inside and outside game uh, representatives, however you want to put that. Howie? Yeah, uh, we're getting close to uh, when we have to um, say goodbye. And I wanted, Aaron, I wanted you to tell people about your event tomorrow. Can you do that? Or, or actually, it's, the event is on, on Tuesday, right? Yep. Uh, so it'll be tonight, Tuesday, uh, June uh, 27th. Um, uh, we're really excited for it. It's our end of quarter Zoom grassroots fundraiser and rally. Um, you know, most of our events are just here in Rhode Island, but we wanted to create some that was virtual so that anyone could could join. We've got a really exciting lineup uh, of supporters of our campaign um, who are going to be speaking, including Congressman Raskin, uh, including Maurice Mitchell, who's the National Director of Working Families Party, uh, including Stephen Donziger, the uh, human rights from Chevron, the guy who took on Chevron, the guy who took on Chevron. Um, he's a big supporter of our campaign. Um, Vanessa Carlton, the uh, musician behind uh, that song Thousand Miles that we all uh, remember. Um, she's actually a Rhode Island. She lives in Rhode Island now, so she's going to be on. So anyway, it'll be a fun time, a good lineup. Um, and um, uh, I don't know if we can put the link for that in the show notes. Yes, um, it'll all be in there. It'll all be, be in there. Well, why, don't you, why don't you give the, uh, the address uh, verbally now for, for how people can get involved with the Zoom call? What time is it, et cetera? Um, that is a great idea. Well, <laughs> I have it at secureactblue.com forward slash donate forward slash end of quarter rally. Yeah, the, the, um, there's a shorter, a shorter link. People can go to aaronregenberg.com slash rally. There you go. AaronReganberg.com slash rally um, to RSVP and get the Zoom link to join that. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. Howie, why don't you wrap it up with a final question, then we'll command people to donate. <laughs> well, yes, uh, you can command people to donate. But uh, Aaron, um, 
I, I know candidates don't like to talk about this, but when I look at the people who are running running against you, it's it's horrifying. Uh, they're, they're, I know they're Democrats, although if they were in California, they'd be probably Republicans. They, you, you have an awful bunch of people running, and, and, and they're barely Democrats. So it's very, very, very important for people to um, uh, to get out and to support you for this for the primary. That's where it's important. It's the primary on on Tuesday. Um, two of the most conservative uh, state senators in Virginia both got defeated by progressive, outspoken progressives. Be two very conservative Democrats. Like one was like Joe Manchin, and the other one was like Joe Manchin, and they're both from the state senate now. Uh, and it was it was people who didn't hold back are the ones who won, not people who pussyfooted it around, people who didn't hold back and sounded like uh, David Feldman. Um, so uh, that wasn't that wasn't really a question. But I, but I wanted to ask you if there's any indication that you're just sinking in in Rhode Island. Uh, are, are they uh, you know, I mean, they, they elect you know, very progressive people like David Cipollini. And uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, and then they elect you know people like uh, Gina Raimondo and uh, Seth Magaziner. It, do you have any indication uh, if you're ahead in this thing? I know it's hard to tell when there's a dozen people running. So we're we're feeling really good. Um, you know, in 2018, I ran a progressive primary challenge to our then incumbent lieutenant governor. He's currently our governor. Um, and we didn't quite make it in that race, but we earned 49% of the vote statewide against an incumbent. And so we were able to build this really strong coalition and network of supporters, endorsers, volunteers, and in, in communities all across the district. So we've got some real strong infrastructure that gives us a, a good leg up. Um, this is a district, again, that totally can and should support someone who believes in a bold progressive agenda. Um, uh, we saw that. We saw that in 2018, um, and I think we're gonna we're gonna see it in this race. So we're feeling really good. We've got you know we're building the coalition. We you mentioned some of our endorsements. We're building a really strong um, team, um, and it is true. So the end of the financial quarter is this Friday, June 30th, and every uh, major group looks at those numbers to decide. Okay, who are we gonna throw down? Um, and so we are on this all-out sprint. Um, the, the higher our numbers are, and we're feeling really good. We've got some great momentum on that front, but uh, we need to sprint through to the finish. The higher our numbers are, the easier everything else is going to be in this race. Um, so for viewers who are watching, uh, I'd say if you wanted to make a contribution, five bucks right now before Friday is equal to like 15 or 20 bucks uh, later on. Um, so this is really the time when you can, uh, you can maximize your impact. So thank you so much for considering uh, supporting our campaign. Great. Well, uh, I don't ask my listeners for too much, but I can't think of a better investment than giving to Aaron Regenberg. Go right now to AaronRegenberg.com and donate. That's the best place to go, right? Um, yes. Yeah, that works. Yeah, AaronRegenberg.com. Attend his rally to, on Tuesday, uh, forward slash rally. And can I interest you in showing up to our Friday night meetup? We've raised money for Howie's candidates. 
would you be would you be available this Friday to come in and talk for a few minutes to get some last minute money? That sounds great. Okay, then we will see you this Friday, and we'll try to get you more money. Howie, can you be there? Uh, I'll try. What time on Friday? You tell me. I'll work around your schedule. We start at eight, but I can move people around. This is urgent, so we'll we'll let's let's not in front of the audience. We'll work this out. Thank you so much. Aaron thank Re- you so much, David. This was so great to be on your show. And, well, and thank you, Howie, as always. Thank you. I, I always say, this is what I say, giving money to candidates like Aaron Regenberg is a form of prayer. It really is. If you're feeling down and powerless, give Aaron $5, $10. You will feel better than you would drinking a stale cup of non-union coffee from Starbucks. It is a form of prayer to give to Howie's candidates. You'll feel better, I promise you. Thank you, Howie Klein. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much. 